0: Hi Florian, how are you doing? Hi, fun, thanks for having me. Now yeah, well, watch this, so the, the first question is, mayb- maybe you remember, what was your first computer?
1: My first computer? Oh boy, it's a while back. Uh, yeah, it was a, a Amstrad CPC, or a, a better known as a, as a Schneider CPC in, in our regions. Mm-hmm. Um, nice with a, a green screen and a real old school machine, no hard disk, mm-hmm. only... Um, floppy uh-huh. disks, and that uh, was my first contact um, with uh, programming languages. A basic interpreter was running on a machine uh-huh. where I could fiddle around with sounds uh, creating a little graphic stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, this was my first contact, and yeah, I was, I guess, 12 years or so uh-huh. of age, and yeah, that was my entry <laughs> in the business, I guess.
0: This is um yeah. the Amstrad companies. It was actually interesting. I will have to do some research because uh, I had a SETIC Spectrum one hundred twenty eight K, but officially it was bought by Amstrad. So uh, I think mm. was the first release. Amstrad bought it. I think then Amstrad also bought the Schneider. I guess right because yep. Schneider is a German and Amstrad. I, I I don't know where they are coming from. Maybe UK. So we have to do. I will do some research because it's interesting that they bought actually lots of stuff back then. And actually, my ZX spectrum was a serious machine. You know, the the first one was like rubber keys, and my was actually nice. It was, uh, you know, with uh, plastic keys, and uh, yeah, and it was a nice machine with integrated data set. Uh-huh. So, if, if if you got the uh, when you got the um, the Amstrad or CPC, um, you started immediately programming, or you loaded a game first.
1: Yeah, of course, it was gaming. Yeah. Um, so it was my my brother's old machine, actually. Um, I got it from him, or I, I could use it uh, just for gaming in a, the first few months or years. But then I discovered hey, I, I could do stuff on my own just by hacking some lines of code. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was um, a, a huge manual, a few hundred pages uh, mm-hmm. with it, with uh, programming instructions, and that's what you have, what you could do just mm-hmm. by programming. There was no real operating system. Um, with a user interface it was just a console mm-hmm. of course, back back then Yeah, um, and the first thing I guess was some kind of sound uh, emulator for uh, uh, putting out some 8-bit noises but uh, I was hooked for, from the first hour of, of working
0: with it yeah. You mentioned no, uh, no user interface, just a console um, what is interesting because uh, to save, you had to type save and it stored whatever happened on the machine to disk. So I think if we have wrote the code, we just used to know the uh, the arrow keys. But uh, how we run it? So I knew there was a run command. I think I know it. You've wrote the code. And in my case, there was a uh, command R was run and it ran whatever was on the screen, right?
1: Yeah, basically um, you had to put the line numbers um, sure. at first. And uh, if you ran out of line numbers, if you didn't leave enough gaps, yeah, uh, you were screwed. So you had to start over again. Yeah, yeah. So yeah so there 10, was no 20, way of to insert. Yeah, lines. there <laughs> was
0: uh, the first pattern was ten, twenty, thirty. You know, so you had always yeah, yeah. No, never do one, two, three. But if you run the program, you have to specify the line, uh, line number where it starts. You just could say it run. What I'm interested in so. know because we've wrote the uh, the software just in the screen, right? But there was no yep. files first, because to have a file, you have to, lo- to to write it to a tape. What I forgot, you know, how we were able to run the software on the screen, because you had to switch to command mode or something to say run. And what I know on my machine, the R button, I think was just R, was for run. So if I push the button and it it ran whatever was on the screen, right? So you know what I mean? Because usually we have an editor, we save the file and we run the file, but there was no files, right? So the, the, what interests yeah. me, you mentioned this right now, there was just the console and you were right. So you could write, you know, in the console, 10, whatever, 20, 30, 40, 50, and maybe even change it. So, um, so there was like the editor all the time. So I think the editor and the console were one, right? There was no editor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. I think it was some F key to start at F5 or so. Uh, yeah. I don't remember, to
0: be honest. You, you know, uh, what was an, our or my misunderstanding right now, uh, the terminal was the editor. So if you said, you know, let whatever, it is uh, the same as you would just program in Z shell, right? Right now or in shell. This is what happened back then. So you could, you just wrote, you know, the commands and it were executed one by one. And you could reset, maybe. I don't know how to reset work, but uh, you could run them multiple times. So maybe you should watch on YouTube. There was, you know, C64, what I actually did. So this was interesting. Because, yeah, there was no editor. I know that you can load the code and save the code, of course, but uh, this was not usual that you save, you know, you have to do this to to do.
1: Okay. took me a while to figure it out, actually, um, because uh, the stuff I brought was gone after I shut the machine down. So, yeah, um, yeah, but these were the first steps, and...
0: What what, what is your first
1: program? Yeah, the the sound machine. So you have, um, of course, I wanted to uh, develop games. Okay. Back then, I guess it was some kind of football manager or so. Um, So I hacked in a a lot of data, the the player names and so on, to build a bit of an initial data set. But I ran out of memory very, very quickly because it only had 64K of RAM. Mm Mm-hmm. And Then I had to figure out how to save the disk and so on, and I, I would have needed—I don't know—hundred disks to s- uh, yeah. save these huge data set we need. Uh, I needed for the uh, for this game, and then I, I gave up eventually. <laughs> so, so how,
0: how many football players are there? I mean, uh, uh, thousands. yeah thousands,
1: okay. tens of thousands. Yeah. And you knew them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I found a, a data set uh, on some okay. website back then, uh, or, or uh, not a website. Internet wasn't. Uh, so far, it was a a magazine with yeah. uh, I, I guess kicker or something. Mm-hmm. They had a, a data set published in their uh, preseason issue, and uh, that's where I had the data from. Oh. but there are a lot of uh, yeah teams and players. I guess in, in Germany alone, there are uh, what wow, twenty or thirty thousand active players. Wow, uh, a million, million, not. Just down to the uh, Sunday leagues or amateur players, it's it's huge.
0: So, so your goal was to, to, to capture everyone, right?
1: No, no, just uh, the pro leagues, but uh, okay. these are a lot as well. So, yeah.
0: Okay, so you became, you know, the Google of uh, German football, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the, that's actually cool. So you were forced to start with a small database, right? Or you think how to offload yeah. the memory to persistent disk? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, what was the next application? So, next application.
1: Yeah, I tried around with um, later on on um, the X eighty six. Oh, this was your X next machine. Yeah. Okay. Um, I played around with three uh, D engines actually. Um, hmm. with, uh, with mathematical background, that was back then in my uh, my first years as a uh, in, or at, at university. And so I uh, I never found a good 3D engine back then which um, fit the needs. I, uh, I had a few uh, friends mm-hmm. over which were interested as well and uh, we said, hey, let's make a game like um, a first-person adventure game running around and uh, you had to uh, render stuff um, like um, the, the, the Doom engine back then. Okay. Uh, Kind this way, and the engines which were available um, didn't fit the need. So I said, "Yeah, let's try it. Um, Make some sprite engines and stuff." And that's where um, I got into this uh, 3D modeling. But uh, that uh, never uh, that went didn't went well, uh, didn't go well. So we we gave an eventually because it's uh, undoable for a team of two or three people. We realized that uh, really quickly <laughs> and had to uh, stop the project. But it was an, uh, a nice uh, stuff to play around. But it worked, after w- worked somehow,
0: Hello World, something or nothing?
1: Yeah, uh, we had a few um, scenes rendered. Okay. And uh, a little sound uh, and uh, camera views were working or the, the um, collision engines, actually. Mm-hmm. We had a, a small collision engine uh, which was working, but um, after that you had to design all the sprites and sounds and yeah, develop a storyboard and and so on. So
0: the last miles, <laughs> a lot of work, <laughs> last hundred miles, yeah. last hundred miles. Um, and this, you you mentioned it was a small team. Was it a university assignment or your friends or no?
1: It's uh, just a private fun project. Yeah, the
0: oh. so Marcus was also hacking with you, Marcus Cat,
1: oh no, not not that early. Uh, okay. I met Marcus after uh, university. Okay. Um, in in different projects. So, but that's uh, I, I did different projects before I met him. Um, uh, for for different customers, uh, just to earn a bit of money for okay. the university. Yeah. So and.
0: So the three D three D was your first serious project in the at the university, right? So what was yeah. the first commercial maybe? Or what do you, what 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 happened and what, what were the most interesting project you did at the university? The University, um yeah my first commercial project was
1: um for the hospitality uh business for um managing drinks deliveries and uh, storage and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, used in restaurants and, uh, and a few hotels, mm-hmm. um, but then the the owner, which paid me, um, he um, he sold his business, and then the project
0: was dead, unfortunately.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Which programming language you used back then?
1: Um, basic, actually.
0: Basic. So always yeah. basic. Also the three D engine was in basic.
1: Um, yeah, it was basic as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was quick basic, uh, back quick,
0: then, quick yeah. basic, q basic. Yeah, okay, this was the Microsoft Basic, right? I think. The q- yeah. Ba- yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, interesting. Um, 3D engine in Basic. So, um, was it fast enough? I assume it was, right? Yeah, it, it ran
1: pretty nicely. Yeah, uh, on the machines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but uh, these were the, the last projects in, in Basic because we. Or Visual Basic. Later on, we used for the mm-hmm. for different projects with um, uh, other students. Mm-hmm. I had a project for a little CRM. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it died as well, and uh, because we, we split ways, we had a different idea. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, we I got into Java, of course. Mm-hmm. So and uh,
0: how how you get got to Java from Basic to Java, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was taught at university, and um, okay. I I tried out C++ and and different other languages, but uh, Java always seemed the most easy one, the most intuitive one for mm-hmm. me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I liked it, mm-hmm. and so uh, probably I, I stayed with Java because I disliked really disliked C++. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's why I used Java. Well, why used, you
0: disliked C++? Um,
1: it was too complicated okay. for for the stuff I would do. Yeah, you can do a lot of uh, nice hardware stuff, uh, it's nearer to the the hardware layer, of course. And uh, but you had to do manage you had to manage everything yourself, the uh, deconstructors or cleaning up the memory and so on. And I said I, I don't want to do it, uh, and Java does it for me, so mm-hmm. I will stick to Java and the freaking pointer pointer and whatever yeah. stuff. That is. <laughs>
0: So I actually have to admit, uh, at the beginning, I really like C plus because you know I could, as you said, you know I played with constructors, deconstructors, and uh, pointers of pointers. At one point of time, I think like, how how double looks like, and with pointer arithmetic, I could actually see what happens inside. You know, I was fascinated by the entire templates and see see in and see out. I like you know the stream uh, um, stream redirections. So I really like it. And if Java came out, I would say, okay, a little bit boring. And what I really hated, there were no header files. So this is what I always search Mm. for, for the .h headers. Where is my .h header? And I say, okay, there's an interface, but somehow it was not clean enough for me because it was the same type. I, I don't know even. I only remember I didn't like interfaces back then. Um, but I really liked the header files back then. So um, and I cannot explain it uh, anymore. <laughs> what, what what I didn't like uh, about the interfaces, but uh, for me uh, C++ seemed cleaner. And uh, and, and Java was uh, someone told me, you know, this is the next big thing or whatever. This was oak, and then I said, okay, cool. Then I will look at this, and then I get uh, immediately a project, and then uh, you now stuck with Java. So there was uh, this short story. And with which Java version you you started actually? Oh, uh, it was 1.1. Wow, yeah. very early. So it was like 1998, yeah. something like this, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, cool. And, and at the university, they already uh, uh, teach Java 1.1? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy university. Or Silicon Valley, or what?
1: No, it was a, a private school uh, near uh, uh, in the north of Bavaria. Okay, cool. It's a small town, yeah. It was a privately funded school back then. Now it's uh, state funded. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the luck to get in. What's the name of the school? Uh, it's in Wiesau. It's a, a small a school with only I, oh,
0: 50 attendees a year. So there were Elon Musk, you know, and Jeff Bezos, and then you right? so. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was uh, a yeah, yeah, cool story, actually. Yeah. Uh, and, and you immediately like Java? Yeah, you said it. Yeah. Right? Because it's simple. Yeah. Okay. What did you do with Java then?
1: Um... Uh, we quickly uh, went to database programming, actually, um, uh, attaching, uh, playing around with JDBC or playing SQL back then. And uh, yeah, that was my first contact with um, the, the relational stuff, of course. Mm-hmm. No SQL, wasn't a thing back then. There were, were a few object-oriented databases around. Exactly. Don't remember the names.
0: Echelon is one, mm. right?
1: Yeah, yeah, true. And, uh, yeah did a lot of uh, projects because it was the way to go. Um, but uh, I guess you you know the story a bit with Marcus later on. Um, in customer projects we we saw, yeah, it's, it didn't uh, really fit. So we always had the, the two worlds which were colliding. So tables and uh, the object model and of course as a, a programmer you like to play with objects. You want to design your Object model and but you had had to adapt it to the freaking tables and uh, use a lot of features which Java actually has and which would be nice to use and, and then we fiddled around uh, enhancing the Hibernate tools and uh, did the stuff back with the uh, Eclipse mm-hmm. which was uh, yeah, the the Eclipse distribution which we added um, some plugins to it with uh, UI builder and the Enhanced Hibernate tools mm-hmm. to get the, the synchronization between the object uh, and database side better going, um, but we always saw, yeah, it it wasn't the way to go. Um, you you will always have the same problems. We could uh, ease the pain, but we couldn't heal but, uh, the w- problem. Yeah.
0: You played with JDBC because you still had the problem with uh, the. Football players, right? So <laughs> you still wanted to. No, it? no, It was no. <laughs> a bad idea. I think, you know, it was a bad your, idea. Yeah. You, your, your trauma, you know, as a, as a, yeah, as a kid, yeah. I have you really to store all the football or soccer players. And it was in text files back then. <laughs> yeah. The um, JDBC. So what I remember, because I, I search now, you know, I remember Echelon, but they renamed it, that thing to Echelon, had a nicer name. There were lots of object oriented databases back then. Mm. And the second, and after that, XML databases came. And uh, in every project, I had to evaluate a couple of object uh, relational databases and uh, also XML databases. It was huge hype because back then, no one believed that SQL will survive, right? This was the mm-hmm. thing. So in every project, it's like, we cannot use SQL because it will die, you know. The, the future are object databases and XML databases. And this is why, why we started, you know, back then with all the patterns, DAOs or whatever, because we said, okay, we have to decouple from SQL because, um, I mean, we this were uh, my, my clients actually <laughs> me? I just would say, okay, you have Oracle, but uh, they say, okay, no, 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 I uh, you know the future is something different. And even if you look at the early J2E patterns, they also stated, you know, there is a lot of persistence, file persistence, object persistence, XML persistence, and therefore we need a DAO. So, okay, uh, then you have the DAO, but um, so um, you played with JDBC and and then you immediately started to, to use Java commercially, or or you did some you know some research and then you met Marcus, or how you met Marcus, maybe. Um
1: I met it, I met him while I was in, in Visa. So he had an an offering for an internship mm-hmm. and in in a very old company back then. He had with different partners. So um they did a, a web editor. Mm-hmm. Um like a bit like front page mm-hmm. or a PowerPoint and um, I really liked the idea. Um so i said yeah i I took the internship and so i I met him and the crew and the project and that's basically um Mm -hmm. i I worked together with marcus uh, since then it was 2001 yeah Mm -hmm. over 20 years
0: okay and to the listeners we had a couple of episodes already with marcus cat and the last one was 116 when a java application becomes a db for instance we was about the microstream okay and uh as so you play a little bit with Java then met Marcus and immediately started to use Java commercially more or less yeah, commercially yeah. with him mm-hmm.
1: because they use Java as well mm-hmm. exclusively and so I, I really focused on this language mm-hmm. um, I, I threw away all my my C++
0: and <laughs> basic okay. stuff and uh, yeah okay so um what, what do you build? Or, or or you know how long it took or what what happened at Markus Company?
1: Yeah, we um, we built the well. The the web editor wasn't finished yet, so um, uh, I joined the team afterwards after university. I he gave me a contract, uh-huh. and um, I joined the team and uh, immediately um, yeah, added features to, uh-huh. to this web editor. Um, and afterwards, so um, web editor was was running well. Uh, had a lot of users. Uh-huh because uh, it was distributed over um, magazines back then and um, service providers, internet service providers. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was always... um, Customers said, yeah, we have to customize stuff. We have to uh, add features like online shops and so on. This was always the wish uh, Mm -hmm. of of a lot of customers. And so we, we... um planned around and uh, we, we went in a different direction so the idea for a little development environment with a web front end was born and um in the first versions we designed a kind of a basic dialect because the the guys which would uh, wanted to um develop stuff for their websites or online shows they they weren't programmers they were designers and um, that if we would have used Java for this, they couldn't have uh, mm-hmm. made any any stuff. So we had a, a really simple basic as a, a backend language.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, this worked for, for a few solutions, but it wasn't powerful enough. And mm-hmm. uh, you didn't have an ecosystem, of course. There were no libraries which you could use. Um, and we had to add all the features developers eventually need like uh, version management or um, uh, a proper IDE. Mm-hmm. Um, this was uh, not the way to go. We realized uh, after a few months or, or one or two years. And that, uh, that's why we uh, decided to um, move the the IDE to the Eclipse platform, mm-hmm. to the Eclipse IDE, use all the existing stuff like the uh version or Mm-hmm. Yeah, Git wasn't a thing back then, or well, not a, a popular thing, Yeah. Um, so we used subversion all the time, and uh, all the yeah, uh, proper development tools which we couldn't provide because we had a, just a, too small of a mm-hmm. team. And uh, that's why we decided to move the project to the Eclipse Foundation and eventually use Java as, uh, as a programming language for it. because. Um, we said, even uh, if a uh, few designers just develop the front end, they can uh, uh, use these, uh, real programmers for it or uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, buy software, uh, because Java had a, a bigger yeah, ecosystem back then, so you have all the libraries you need, all the tooling you mm-hmm. need for uh, monitoring and whatnot. And whatnot. So, we decided to move to Java eventually. Um, Touch the the basic stuff, um, and so we had a you mean quite powerful to idea to
0: Java as design language for the frontend, right? So at yeah. the beginning you try to be a no code and then low no code. code, low code stuff, yeah. yeah. And now and then we say, okay, uh, the, the Java is too powerful, so let's allow mm-hmm. to, to Java to be used uh, in the frontend because in the backend everything was 100 percent Java all the time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, you also focused on server, or was it a FAT client back then?
1: It was uh, a server application,
0: yeah. Oh, uh, which application server, or how it, or you built it? It was... Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, we used Tomcat most of the time, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Tomcat. Mm-hmm. And in the front end, you co- connected to Tomcat via SOAP,
1: or...? Uh, it was a Warden uh, application. Ah, okay. From yeah. the beginning? Mm, not from the beginning, but after... We, we moved to, to the Eclipse platform, we, we decided to use Vardin. Okay. We played around with different stuff, um, different frameworks, but uh, Vardin really um, yeah made the race between the frameworks, yeah. and it, it was the best.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it, it looks beautiful as well, right? So nice yeah. people, looks beautiful, good open source strategy, yeah, it was yeah. a right choice. When was this with Vardin? Which, which year, roughly?
1: Oof, that's a good question. I... A few, uh, one or two years later, we met the guys at Chawabon. Uh, uh, I think it was in two thousand and six or seven. Yeah.
0: Okay, so it's, uh, yeah. really early, because yeah. um, before that, I think the Google Web Toolkit happened as well, right? But it was terrible. Uh, so I mean, yeah, Varden used it in, in yeah, yeah. the first versions. Yeah. But uh, Va- Varden used it even even later, but uh, they they hide it, right? So th- there there was no reason. To, to create the compilations or so the, the, the genius thing about Vardin was that Vardin pre-compiled all the components, so it was really fast. And if you use you know, GWT directly, it happened all the time in the hosted mode, so it was very slow and terrible, actually.
1: Yeah, true. And that's why, I guess, that's why they decided to ditch it and use web components instead,
0: yeah. Oh, this was the reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, web
1: components even better, right? Because... Yeah, of, <laughs> uh, Jonas, <laughs> yes. uh, the founder, one of the founders, uh, that uh, he sees web components as the future in web design, which he was right mm-hmm. about. And uh, he, yeah, that's why they decided to ditch uh, Google Web Toolkit and uh, use different tools mm-hmm. under the hood and go completely to Web components and they split the framework. So you can use uh, web components and JavaScript only on a mm-hmm. on a client side and they attach the server side framework to it. So mm-hmm. it was the right decision in my eyes as well.
0: Yeah, it was uh, excellent decision because I already used Varden in my web component only project. So um, if I need some custom elements, you know, Varden is one of my first choices. So they have uh, really nice components. Um yeah. calendar one of course, table, so uh looks nice and charts
1: and so on, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And nice. I so uh, yeah, I was I didn't knew that it was that early that he used uh, Varden. And what's also interesting, so maybe we are 100 kilometers and now apart, and no. I never met you actually earlier. So this is the crazy stuff, because uh, I was also in the Java community and know actually most of the people are active in Germany, but you know you are the closest to me, and I had no idea that something like this happening. So I didn't knew Marcos, I didn't knew you um and, and we both did Java, so this was actually you were somehow hidden you know in the Bavarian forest, as I always say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, hmm. and um, I spent also sometimes at conferences, but uh, yeah, I was not aware of 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 actually such interesting projects in in you know in my neighborhood almost yeah,
1: that's uh, odd that we didn't meet earlier because we we went to the systems um mm-hmm. conference back then uh and mostly CBIT, yeah,
0: in, in Hanover. Yeah. yeah. I was also uh, CBIT and uh, and systems, and both conferences were really big, big means. At the systems, there was a traffic jam, and at the CBIT, even worse. Yeah. I, I would remember they had, you know, to change the, la- the the lanes uh, yeah. on the street, you know. In the in the morning, so like, you know, everyone goes to one direction and only one lane back, and then they change it, they flip that. So it yeah, was, they
1: change the auto-bound to a one-way the street, basically. Yeah, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. To, to manage the traffic. And I also uh, was on the Civit and I was on the systems with, and I had similar project to yours, actually. It was a content management system uh, as well, built from scratch, but it run on Java web server, but it was earlier. So I think uh, I stopped there 2002, and uh, this was a larger project. I was I was contractor, and uh, it was servlets, basically Java beans, not enterprise Java beans. They were not. I didn't like them at the beginning. Um, so it was also neat. So we used uh, Java beans, servlets, and uh, own transactions. So um, and we built a small design tool as well with Swing, and how it worked it differently. So we serialized Java beans. Uh, as a templates and we could read the java beans into the frontend and uh use no the parameters into the template so it 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 worked a little bit similar to css right now i think mm-hmm. so uh, exactly the java beans was like a css file more or less mm-hmm. and um it, yeah it worked well so uh, i mean well uh for now it is would be unusable because it's well too complicated but uh for back then you know the swing design you could you could actually say uh the, the, the font size or whatever was like a table so we built a small designer which serialized the java beans and they were loaded at runtime to the system I even think from database uh from it was always oracle and um uh, yeah so i was a little bit earlier three years and then i spent lots of time in consulting so um uh, in different projects so and uh, this is where you know it was a little bit more chaotic um okay so um what happened after the editor you always worked with marco since then basically yeah
1: so um after all the editor um, we saw in, in customer projects or uh, uh, the users of the ide mm-hmm. um, they really liked the designer they built beautiful user interfaces but they had always trouble uh, connecting to a database, um, they fought with uh, Hibernate sessions mm-hmm. and caching and settings, and uh, it was a mess. Uh, and we saw in, in, in our um, in the customer projects or the feedback was: uh, it's too complicated. Uh, we have to, we don't like uh, object relational mapping. Uh, databases are fine, but the the conversion is hard to do. Uh, this was mostly the the biggest problem, and we didn't like it anyway. So the basically the idea was born. We had to go a different way, a different path regarding persistence. So and so,
0: sorry, so your server yeah. used at the beginning Hibernate or JPA, Hibernate plane, right?
1: Um, we used JPA, but with hibernate with hibernate yeah we okay. never used different framework
0: yeah. yeah okay and then of course yeah. there's no yeah. how to call it the object uh, uh, java object relational gap right because yeah. objects are not uh, tables and uh, yes uh, you cannot do it right because uh, if you normalize the table the java objects are to fine grained, and you spend lots of time joining so it is really really right. slow and if you denormalize the tables it looks right from the java perspective but uh Back then, it was mission impossible because every database administrator will try, you know, to, to revert that. So it was actually, in my projects we had a couple of one-to-one tables, so one-to-one relation, right? And I wanted okay. to, to to merge them, and this was like, you know, I already knew three hours discussion and meetings. So you cannot do this, just, uh, you denormalize the, 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 the database. Mm. And now, surprisingly, we can just do it and, and no one cares now anymore, right? Because okay. the storage is cheaper than back, back then.
1: Uh-huh. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. the problem was uh, a lot of old databases were used in the projects and uh, a lot of tables were documented what field does what and so on. Um, it was a mess. Uh, nobody wanted to touch the database anyway. Just add new stuff, but never touch the old stuff. Don't change it. Uh-huh. Um, and so we, they had to adapt to the existing database and uh, it was never easy to get it um, halfway decent uh, fast to work uh, with a Java application. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had always a problem with, uh, with performance and it was complicated. The The queries, we had queries over three displays uh, or uh, 120 lines of uh, SQL code. It was horrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's where the idea was born to to say, why do we need a database in the first place? So um, we said we have. Uh, we all like Java um, and all Java programmers uh, can design the object model based on the business problem without uh, thinking persistence in the first place. But then you have to adapt it to a database. So they did it the other way around. So they designed the database and then imported the object model with the Hibernate tools most of the time. And so um, the use of the Java features were very limited because you couldn't use uh, maps properly, um, and 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 complex types were hard to use anyway. And uh, if you added uh, different frameworks like uh, monetary APIs or data APIs, it was impossible because you had to write your own converters for JPA and so on. It was a mess, really hard to use. Mm-hmm. And you still had the uh, yeah, impedance mismatch and the thousand other mismatches to handle. Mm-hmm. And so we said, uh, Java can do everything except persistence. And that's uh, that was a missing feature for us. Of, of course, we had JPA, but um, with uh, the non-problems. And so we decided, um, or said, there must be a better way.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, said, the Java application is a server anyway. So why... We, do we need a second server just to persist data? Um, you can do all um, the the stuff like user management, uh, right management, and so on in your server application. You have a central point where you can do it. So let's just add persistence to the server, and uh, you should should be good to go. And that's where the idea of MicroStream was born, or, or chat stream, we called it back then, mm-hmm. um, internally, and the.
0: I actually know the JetStream yeah. name back then. Yeah, and and when it started with the JetStream. So the, you know the the very first idea. Which year was it? It was about 2013, 2014. Okay.
1: Yeah. the The, the idea was born, and uh, we said so. In order to store uh, Java objects, uh, you have to convert them to some format. So there were an XML parser back then and the Java serializer. So we said, yeah, uh, XML is too slow. And it's too much overhead, so we had to have to go to a binary form, and the Java serializer was no good, or is no good. So, um, so back the then, biggest how,
0: how you found out that the Java serialization is not good? So I mean, you knew it, or or you had a root problem?
1: Yeah, the biggest problem actually was um, we didn't want to just snapshot the the state of the JVM. Um, because um, it was too slow for huge data sets or Mm -hmm. you couldn't handle bigger amounts of data with small amounts of RAM. So Mm the snapshots were out. And then we said uh, we had to store and restore parts of the object graph and we had to use lazy loading Mm -hmm. and unload stuff again to free up the memory because you have to handle hundreds of gigabytes of data with small amounts of RAM. So um, with a Java serializer, it wasn't doable because we always got object copies and uh, new object references, which we couldn't assign back to the object graph.
0: Ah, so the problem you yeah. have got is uh, yeah. if you have uh, no references between Java objects and you serialize the first one, every, everything gets serialized. But yeah. what you needed is t- that you have a serializer, which is a little bit more configurable. So you can say, serialize just this one and later the other one. And then you can yep. load both and reconstruct them in memory, right? This was the yeah. missing... Missing feature from Java serializer. Absolutely, mm-hmm.
1: missing feature and the another thing which uh, wasn't good: um, the object have to implement the Serializable interface in order to be mm-hmm. serialized. And um, we, back then, we thought there are a lot of libraries out there which uh, could be used to to solve several problems in, in business applications, and they weren't serializing. Mm-hmm. So um, you couldn't use them. Mm -hmm. And that was one feature and the security issues as well because most of the security issues with Java um, were caused by the Java serializer. And uh, if you would market a a product, use a product which has a lot of security flaws, nobody would use it.
0: Yeah. And and can you briefly explain, uh, by the way, before you briefly explain um, I just uh, just uh, thought um about your design decision to say, We don't need the server. we can load everything. you know, you can store everything by by ourselves. Similar decision made Apple, right? There was a product I don't know they are aware of it called Filemaker. It's yeah. still around, and they also they are hugely successful, and they have similar idea that they actually they are very efficient with storing the data and actually, I met someone who is not, I forgot who it was, but is not a programmer, not a software engineer, and he created amazing application with FileMaker, uh, really amazing, um, and, and had no idea about SQL, right? So this is actually uh, an, an, an interesting de- decision, is what I would tell you, and I just forgot the name. This is FileMaker. Yep. Uh, and um, so now, um, how we could use, you know, how we can, so what is the simplest possible hack for Java serialization? Let's say I would like to have a Hello World app, and I would like to hack it. So how how to tackle that?
1: Yeah, it wasn't so easy to do. Um, in order to, to hack it, you had to inject malicious code of some sort mm-hmm. um, because um, um, the constructor code mm-hmm. was called back then in, in a serializer. They fixed it with uh, newer versions you know, where you can whitelist or blacklist classes. Um, mm-hmm. um, There were hacks done to struts servers, Mm -hmm. which used um, the serialization internally Mm -hmm. and uh, also with Apache common types. Mm -hmm. So you could uh, really uh, inject code into running application servers, and it it was an exploit, which was used, unfortunately, in, in huge... Applications and caused a lot of damage.
0: Yeah, there are lots of applications uh, have used the the Commons collection, right? And the Commons yeah. collection serialization. And uh, if you knew that, you could inject code which was executed, then you could call. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not that easy, but it's possible. I mean, if you know the target is big, we could do this. So what we have to do is we have to manipulate the serialized messages on the fly, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or you could shut down the server. There was a an example with nested collections, which. Mm-hmm. Um, referenced back to the root mm-hmm. and this crashes the serializer um, because of a bug in the collections. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you put a data set mm-hmm. with uh, this special collection constellation in the server, you can crash mm-hmm. um, the, the JVM mm-hmm. because of an... Uh, I guess it was a... I think he ran in an out-of-memory area because he...
0: Or, 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 a stack, uh, or, or a Stack Overflow.
1: Yeah. Uh, a stack o- it was a Stack Overflow. You mm. know? Yeah, it, uh, So you could crash the JVM mm. and bring the server down mm. with, with a, a simple mm. hack. Just uh, add a few collections, put it in a data packet, and send it to the server as a payload, and the server okay. goes down. Yeah. So
0: why now the Jetstream or MicroStream serializer is unhackable or hack- or harder to hack?
1: Yeah, we do use a uh, different approach at the deserialization mm-hmm. uh, session stage. We don't execute code at all. Mm-hmm. So that's not possible to, to inject code and run it at the deserialization phase. What would you do? We just um, use low-level um, stuff in the JVM. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we reserve address space in the RAM, mm-hmm. which is then linked to a, a, a reference or a, an object. And then we populate the data directly byte by byte in RAM mm-hmm. for the fields. And um, then we say the JVM, there is a new object, and it just assigns the object range mm-hmm. to this uh, to this reference, and the object is born uh, in a low-level way. And that's safe to do. No code is executed, and, of course, the quickest way. Um, do you don't say.
0: It has to be, uh, if you do it right, it should be actually... The faster way, because uh, yeah. let's me, you know... Um, so the problem with the Java serialization was it is kind of an interpreter, right? So there, there is uh, there is the object message which travels over the wire, y- uh, sorry, the serial- how to call it, the serialization uh, binary which travels, yeah. and there is the object input stream, i always confuse them, and there's the method read object, and uh, if you read object, the, uh, the, the serialized object is deserialized, and basically Back then, you know, the methods were invoked, at least constructor, and uh, there was some uh, specific magic, I think it was allowed, you know, to set directly private fields, which were usually not allowed, but the serializer could do that back then, right? Some
1: magic method, uh, read and write objects, yeah, exactly.
0: and
1: the, the constructor was called, and the, static in, uh, the, the initializer blocks. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, and in, what you are doing, you say, okay, I'm not instantiating Java objects, but I'm creating on the fly the object in memory and I say you no know, tell the JVM now use it.
1: Yeah. We we, we told uh, we asked the JVM to reserve uh-huh. space in, in on a heap for a new object, get uh-huh. the address back and basic based on that address we can write directly to the memory uh-huh. and populate the fields because we can get the offsets of the fields. Relative to the objects address of, uh, with the low level stuff like unsafe and so on. Yeah, that's uh, Or unsafe is one of the low level stuff uh, in, in the JDK. Sun, MISC, unsafe. Sun, MISC, unsafe, yeah. Um, interestingly, there were a lot of dis- discussions at the Java 1 back then because they wanted to get rid of it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But a lot of uh, frameworks, popular frameworks, used unsafe and so they couldn't kill it, um, but they are moving a lot of unsafe stuff through the public API mm-hmm. space. And uh, there, that's the way to go in my eyes to offer low-level stuff in, for Java users as well. Yeah, yeah sure.
0: I, uh, of course. I mean, if if there's no some uh, machine learning or whatever, it's always low-level stuff, you know? so they oh. have to allow it. Uh, otherwise, maybe with Project Panama or whatever, it would be a little mm-hmm. bit easier. I don't know, but uh, yeah. So you basically are not using GNI. You just fully rely on unsafe, right? Yeah. No GNI. But this is actually... Pretty cool idea, but uh, I would say the idea is crazy. This is why no one is doing this, because it's hard. But if you do it correctly, it is fast and safe. Unless someone replaces your DCLizer, right? Because then this is unsafe again. Because if you have access to the DCLizer, you could do whatever you like, if you understand the code, right?
1: Yeah, of course, but you have to change the actual application.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's um, always true, right? So if I yeah. even if I serialize the object correctly, I can still change the applications to do some new stuff afterwards. So I yeah. Mean, this is, yeah, this is that's
1: like doesn't a general problem of of serializing yeah, data in Yeah, in built of framework.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, so I'm really amazed because um, I had to know always, you know, I ask Marcus about you know what's the thing, and I said, okay, we are fast. I was okay. Everyone claims you're fast, but now I understand why you are fast because you are just streaming the classes directly to native memory of, uh, yep. of of JVM and say now use it. This is like you know the double buffering you know back then with Amstrad, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Almost <laughs> back then with the pictures. So um, yeah, yeah. so cool. So the the serializer makes absolute sense uh, for me. Okay, but it was not enough, right? So you say okay, serialization is one thing, and I always you know uh, interested in the serializer, but uh, you say okay, this is not about the serializer. We have more. So Jetstream was the serializer, or it was already the small database you had?
1: It was a small database, so it um, consisted of two layers. The mm-hmm. one was the, the persistence layer, which was the serializer. Um, it was able to, to uh, what we did was assign uh, unique IDs to objects internally. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were able to restore parts of the object graph Back to the to, to the live one, mm-hmm. and uh, so we could do lazy loading and unloading stuff and manage bigger amounts of memory with smaller amounts of RAM. Um, this was the key point mm-hmm. because we we did the swizzling internally. Swizzling is the the technique for assigning unique IDs to objects. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a Wikipedia article uh, article for it actually. It's just a um, object ID relation management, and because we can do it internally with our own serializer, um, we could manage the partial loading and unloading of the object graph, and that's what a database should do—not just snapshotting the whole state of the RAM, but storing and restoring parts. Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, the dirty parts, right? The dirty parts. Okay. And you call it SwissLink. The SwissLink is a technique to partially load and unload. Is this called? Uh,
1: SwissLink is the the mapping from ID to, uh, to the object. It's an uh, official term, actually. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. And and the 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 SwissLink was, I mean, serialization plus SwissLink is, um, the database.
1: Yeah, it's the binary. Data be construct and uh, restore, so that is the the other persistence part. On top of that, there is the storage layer. Um, So the users don't want to manage files by themselves because you have to write the binary data somewhere and restore it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you change um, your objects and store them again, you got obsolete data in your data storage. Mm -hmm. Or if you delete objects let's say you dereference objects so the object gets uh, collected by the garbage collector in the RAM it has to be removed from the database as well otherwise it would grow indefinitely Mm -hmm. the binary storage and that's what the um, database layer does or that storage layer Um, it it has a housekeeping process running in the background defragmenting the binary layer um, it has a garbage collector running on the binary layer Cleaning up the old stuff, mm-hmm. and um, we have a an, an, an so called abstract file system where it connects um, the binary target. Question: In Most cases, is just it, the is local it file, the, system. The file system. Mm-hmm.
0: the file system from JDK because there is a file system provider? So you use this from JDK or your own? You know, there is you could create your own file system.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we have our own, but mm-hmm. we have an adapter for the uh,
0: NIO. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. this is cool. Yeah. So, this is the first mm-hmm. example of I I know. Which uses actually the DeFi system provider API from NIO? Yeah,
1: we have the first adapter we did, of course, was, was for NIO. Most of the applications just write to a local or a mounted disk. But in a, in a cloud, uh, people wanted to write to different uh, storage targets like um, uh, S3 at, mm-hmm. at AWS or uh,
0: Google Cloud Storage and whatever they are called. Wait a second. So, one question because I, I got uh, immediate an immediate idea. You mentioned cloud. So, with uh, would it be doable? Let's imagine I have a Java object is called uh, picture with metadata. And mm. this picture has one-to-one relation to attachment, which is the actual picture. So could I use a microstream and say, you know, store the picture uh, metadata in DynamoDB, but, you know, the binary data in S3?
1: Yeah, you could we have adapters for for S3 and DynamoDB. Bill. So a, bill w-
0: yeah. yeah, but what what it for I know that you have the adapters, but the, the thing is, uh, you know, whether a, a Microstream is able to load uh one object graph from different stores. Yep, you can do it. But this is a, one of the killer features, right? Because uh usually, uh you always would like, you know, to have um, fast access and uh, and 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 maybe even better search for metadata and but you don't like you know to store big images or whatever in uh, in the the same database so usually yeah. you would like to store it in a three so this would be actually yeah. a nice example you know to split it to to have you know the metadata absolutely yeah. in, in aurora or dynamo db yeah. and the uh this is a this would be a lyric uh, because this is undoable or i mean hardly doable with uh, with uh, java serialization what what i will have, if i would use java serialization yeah i would use two different objects like java records load them independently and then create my own domain object which knows the objects and reconstructs the 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 links right so i will have to double the effort so it would not be transparent but with uh, uh, microstream what i understood you could use you know the same objects and just configure microstream and say attachment goes to s3 and metadata goes to dynamodb right
1: Probably, yeah. What you can do is uh, you can use different storage managers or, or multiple storage managers in, in a single VM, mm-hmm. And one storage manager has um, several root objects and can write to different file targets. Mm-hmm. So you can make uh, one subgraph which writes to a DynamoDB mm-hmm. and the, the second subgraph with the raw data, for example, um, goes to, to S3. Or um, the more easier way would be to have um, just some metadata in, in your object graph, in your live graph, mm-hmm. and just link uh, with an, a unique ID or a name to the binary data and put the binary data just in S3 blobs and, and load them by hand because uh, these are blobs, so we, it's just a single mm-hmm. call to load it.
0: Yeah. yeah, Yeah. sure. This is what I can always do, but uh, you know, if uh, it could be transparent, it would be interesting because um, I could just... just uh, have my Java object graph and then later decide where parts are stored.
1: Yeah. Um, You can customize it uh, down to the last byte. So um, if you want to write, let's say, a handler for images, um, the handler is responsible for uh, storing and restoring a single type. So I write a handler for for image and the handler... um, Serializes and deserializes the object, and it could do it in that way that the serializer goes for the metadata and the binary data is just attached to a different uh, storage target. Yeah, isn't crazier? This,
0: so, what you're saying yeah. now, we have one Java object with you no, know, it's just picture and it has you no know, five fields or strings or whatever and, and ints, and this is stored in DynamoDB, and there's one field by the array. And I can, I can now uh, configure it and say the byte array has to be fetched from S3, right? In one object. Yeah. Yeah, this is even better. Also, because in my solution, it is already pre-assuming that you need a reference between two Java objects. And the second, what you suggested, uh, I like it more because you have one Java object. And the parts yep. of the Java object are stored in different data stores, which is really cloud native. Because... You could even pick and choose depending on costs or whatever, right? You can say, okay, uh, I get a, you uh, know, S3 is cheaper. But, uh, it's all about cost in the mm-hmm. cloud.
1: Yeah, or, or, or just, it's, you can do it more easily. So you just write a lazy getter for the get binary data mm-hmm. in the image, in, in, in your in pojo, and uh, just make a, a simple call to S3. Yeah,
0: but this yeah. is, but then the don't need microstimul, no? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just uh, thinking about transparency. So if I really you know go full in MicroStream, then uh, then um, I would like you know to have a very clean Java POJO domain object, and then use the MicroStream configuration to tell it you know, the byte array ships from a three, and uh, and do it outside. So this would be one one possible approach. So Absolutely, yeah. the cleanest one.
2: Yeah.
0: And how, how, how flexible am I with the IDs? Can I just have my own ID provider or I have to use enough of the objects?
1: Oh, you don't need um, to use own ID providers. It's managed transparently in the background. Mm-hmm. So you could access or could query the object IDs, uh, which, which are just uh, increasing longs, long values, uh, but you never actually need to deal with them. Um, it's um, done in a, in a background by MicroStream, mm-hmm. And the reattachment to the live graph, the reassignment of the references is done by the, the serialization engine. So you don't have to fiddle around with this low-level technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And what you also don't need anymore are stuff like primary keys, foreign keys, and so on. So think of the past. Just use your poachers, your object graph, in... Java, like you're used to, without a persistence in the background, mm-hmm. and then add microsteam and say store and load, and that's it. Don't have to worry about the technical details anymore, like in with uh, object relational mappers.
0: Um, why I'm asking, so but uh, I I have to access the first object somehow, the root object, and for that I would mm-hmm. need the ID right from of the object.
1: No, you just call root of the storage manager or get root. Mm-hmm. And he knows because you set the root in the first place mm-hmm. when you initialize the database, the, the initial data set. And then the the storage engine knows what object is assigned as root and you get it at the next startup. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know the ideas. Uh, ideas.
0: Yeah. So, so there is only one
1: root then? You could use multiple roots. Uh, you, you can inject multiple root managers, there's a root manager in the background Mm -hmm. because uh, we have to manage multiple roots, for example, constants, Mm -hmm. Uh, Java constants, we we have to deal with as roots. It's transparent um, in an object model as well, so you don't have to worry about it. You can manage several roots by yourself. Mm -hmm. But what we suggest is just design a root object, Mm -hmm. pojo, and uh, split from there. Mm Yeah, so uh, you can handle it in your object model and don't have to fiddle around with uh, the little bit of stuff of the persistence engine
0: yeah what I just mm-hmm. thought about uh, immediately is okay what I could do is I could have you know a part of my data stored in, in database in a table and then if I would have the microstream IDs maybe I can just do later something right so I can look up then my root with the ID and then get it back But you could
1: if you have an. Uh, Use case for that. You can query the roots of, of the objects
0: mm-hmm. of uh, which Microsoft mm-hmm. uses internally. Yeah. yeah. And then was the next question, because I had, a, you know, the problem uh, recently is uh, what it would be nice is why the question about IDs um, to make the ID swappable because um, there is an algorithm called uh, ULIDs and they are time-sortable, you know. This is like UID, and what is prependent to the UID is the timestamp. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty cool, because if you have you know, uh, the, um, uh, an, an application with heavy load, you can actually say, okay, what was the most recent UID? It's still UID, but it, it is at least sortable, right? So this is this is where I ask whether it would be possible to swap. But there's no no use case, just to you know. I was curious because I had a problem recently. Mm-hmm.
1: No, we don't use timestamps internally. It's just an increased long value. Yeah,
0: yeah then it's is sortable anyway.
1: And it's... Uh, uh, by time because the higher the UID the newer the object
0: yeah this is even better this is what I thought so so, so I mean this is what I needed because if a UID is not sortable but if your is sortable it's pretty, pretty nice because you put the ID somewhere and it's okay sort by whatever so sort just Lexi Lexi, how does how called call Lexi Lexicographically, lexicographically sorted, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and uh, then the the you know the newest uh, or the oldest uh, they appear first. This is what what's nice about your IDs. But if your you, yours is long, it is already the case that the ID is sortable, which was actually the question. Okay, so my understanding, two layers. So serializer is able to load parts of the objects, uh, dirty detection, and is able to store parts of the objects. Then it also you know streams the uh, changes directly to the JVM deserialization, the and the how deserialization the happens actually. But deserialization we covered. But what about the serializations? Or what are you doing there?
1: Yeah. First of all, we have to analyze the the object by reflection which mm-hmm. fields should be stored. Um, you can exclude it by by default. It's a transient keyword like in a mm-hmm. Java serialization, and um, the based on the reflection we create a metadata Mm -hmm. where the object information is stored Mm -hmm. and based on this layout we um, stream the data from the RAM to the binary storage Mm -hmm. so we just read the values directly out of the RAM we don't uh, call getters or uh, use reflection to eject field data we just um, um, traverse the heap Mm -hmm. directly with low-level memory stuff and get the values out and that's how the serialization works. Mm -hmm. What you can do as well um, is um, versioning of classes, so you you can change your classes over the lifespan of your application. You have to do, of course, because you want to release newer versions. Mm -hmm. Um, And we call it legacy type mapping internally, so you can map from one version of an object to another version. Mm -hmm. Let's say you split name into first and last name, or you change a string to an int, and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what a serializer can do as well, or the deserializer. deserializer. That's uh, embedded in a serializer itself. Mm-hmm. It can manage uh, different versions of
0: objects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So serialization is not, I would say, not that revolutionary. I mean, this way you can no. something different, no. it's just, you know straight you know reflections So it is um so i think your your, your magic is the deserialization, right? right this is where mm-hmm. your, your your advantage is and uh yeah. i would say amazing so um if you like i could re-invite you back you know to talk about more eclipse storage and more deeply about you know how to search for objects and uh you know playing with streams java streams and st- st- stuff like that but um where people can find, you know, MicroStream? You're on Twitter if you have questions, you know. Uh...
1: Yeah, of course. MicroStream is on, on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn uh, and on GitHub. Mm-hmm. The best way to, to get involved um, is at uh, the GitHub discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, Google for MicroStream and the first few mm-hmm. pages will be our website and, and the GitHub. And you're also on Twitter or somewhere?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I will put it to the show notes. And uh, do, do, you, uh, do you also active on Discord in in, in, in uh, Microstream or not on Discord? We are on Slack. Mm-hmm. I can send you the, the information.
1: And uh, yeah, Slack, GitHub, and uh, Twitter.
0: Yeah, but GitHub discussions and Twitter is just fine. And yeah, thank you. It was really interesting discussion. So. Um, about, yeah. about MicroStream. Oh, it's of course open source. We didn't mention that, right? So everything is open source. So, yeah, it is. Yeah, everyone is invited to contribute, hopefully. And uh, yeah. So I would say thank you and see you next time. Yeah, thank you for having me.